0: and we've been following the the purpose of God through uh, this first book of the Bible. And uh, so far, the story is uh, easily summarized, but it's getting longer each week. Uh, God has created the world, and then human beings have made a mess of it, and as a result, sin and death have come into the world But God promised that he's going to send a rescuer, a seed. That's the word we've been been looking at. A descendant of the woman who's going to come and crush the snake and destroy evil and death. And we've been following that promise through the generations of it. And so we've seen that it's gone uh, through from Eve to Seth, uh, through to Noah, through to Shem. And then as we've seen in the last few weeks through to Abraham and his family. But one of the fascinating things, and I think really encouraging, one of the fascinating and encouraging things about Genesis is that it doesn't just follow the main line of the promise. That's a lot of the focus, of course, but it also includes numerous stories of marginal people who are not in that sort of main line, that central line of promise. Marginal characters on the edges of God's promises. They're not the means of blessing to the world, but they're some of the people who are going to get blessed and brought into God's people, that somehow receive blessing because of God's people. And one of them is the subject we're looking at this morning, and his name is Lot. Uh, We're going to be looking at the story of Lot in Genesis chapter 12, and he is a fringe character, not a central character in in many ways. And I find that very encouraging because I'm not a central hero of faith, right? The last few weeks, if you've been with us, we've been introduced to Abraham, who is one of the heroes of faith. Well, believe it or not, I'm not a hero of faith. I I, I don't know how to relate to one. I've never been one. And I feel like that if God only saved heroically faithful people, what hope have I got? No, I need God to save marginal people on the edge who are a little bit of a mess. And God to bring them in. And, and, And so I find stories like the one this week really encouraging because... If Genesis is just about God saving mighty heroes of faith and strength and perseverance, I would struggle to believe that he could save me. Abraham, yeah, I mean, nearly of the nearly 8 billion people in the world today, more than 4 billion trace their roots to him. I mean, I'm not like him at all. No one knows who I am. I'm not a famous person at all. Most of us are unheard of, largely irrelevant people in the grand scheme of things. Sure, you're glad you came to hear that kind of nice encouraging word from your pastor. But, it, but it's true, isn't it? Most of us are not world-changing, dramatically influential people. Most of us are marginal. We live ordinary lives. And so for many of us, it's easier to identify and see ourselves in the story of Lot than the story of Abraham. Lot, if you know him at all. He's either unknown or he's notorious. And if you do know him, it's probably either because he lived in Sodom, which is not a good start, what we know of the reputation of that city, or because he had drunken sex with his daughters, which is not another good thing to be known for, or because his wife looked back at the destruction of Sodom and was spontaneously turned into a condiment. And, and, and those are one of three reasons. If, if you've heard of Lot at all, it's probably one of those three reasons. So when we read a story like this in, in Genesis 19, and we read that God re- rescues this cowardly, greedy, indisciplined ditherer of a man, I find hope. I think, do you know what? God saving Abraham, that's great. But Abraham's a giant of a faith. I'm not. I read Lot, I think, I'm like this. That's me, marginal guy, bit of a mess, that's me. And I trust that that that'll be encouraging for us this morning. And so we're gonna read uh, Genesis 19. And and just what's happened immediately before this story starts is that God has, has said to Abraham, who is up on the hillside, that he's going to destroy the city of Sodom, which is in the valley. And Abraham has started praying and saying, please God, if you, if you could find 50 righteous people there, would you save the city? And God says, yeah, I would. And then Abraham haggles him. He, he haggles him down and says, what about 45? What about 40? He then tries 30. Can I get you down to 10. And eventually, he gets God down to 10. So God says, okay, if you can find 10 righteous people in Sodom, I won't destroy it. And as the story begins, we don't know whether there are 10 righteous people there or not. So we don't know what the fate of the city is going to be. And as we pick up the story, that remains to be seen. So we're in Genesis 19 and verse 1. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Pause for a second. In some ways, this is just a standard uh, introduction to the story. God has sent two angels to see what the city's like and to bring about the judgment. But, but there are a couple of, of, of things already that might be ringing some bells for some of us if we know the rest of the biblical story. And it's, and it's worth recognizing those bells because they're actually going to point to some connections between this story and another story. We have angels visiting a city that God has just threatened to destroy. They are visiting at nighttime, and the people go inside a house, and there is a meal or a feast of unleavened bread. And so there are a number of connections. This is like a Passover story. If you like the story of the Passover, it, it, might, be, uh, it might ring some bells. You think, oh, that's just what happened that night when God breaks um, Israel out of slavery in Egypt, right? The destroying angels come at night to bring judgment. People go inside of their house and they eat a feast of unleavened bread. And so you think, hmm, this is interesting. This sounds familiar. And, and, and that might help us as we go. Oh, this, this, this may be a story in which God is going to bring rescue to some people out of a situation of judgment to others. Verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, that is, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, "'Where are the men who came to you tonight?' Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, this is where the story becomes a little bit X-rated because knowing something, it sounds nice, doesn't it? You know, bring them out. We'd like to, we'd like to get to know them. Hey, great to meet you. How, you know, Welcome to our city. That's not what it means. Okay? To know people in the biblical sense, Adam knew uh, Eve and she became pregnant, right? He, he didn't go up and say you know, hey, nice to meet you, I'm Adam. And then she goes, oh, goodness, where, where did this come from? That's not what it means. Knowing someone is a euphemism like we have to sleep with or to lie with, whatever. In this context, to know is to have sex with. So this is a story about the man of the city wanting to gang rape these two visitors. That's what the story's about. They're wanting to rape these men. Bring them out. We want to know them. Okay? It's a vile story. It's appalling. And it gets worse because Lot doesn't respond like you might hope that somebody related to Adam would respond. Verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Kind of ironic. Behold, I have two daughters who haven't known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So these men of the city come and they say, We want to gang rape these two men. And Lot's like, Oh no, don't do that. They're my guests. Have my daughters. I mean, what kind of father would do that? This is a diabolical story, and we're meant to be repulsed by it as a way of showing how, how degraded this city is. And in some ways, the story is just preparing us for the, the justice that's going to come upon this city. But they, that's the men of the city, said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you. With you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, that's the angels inside the house, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. This, this is a horrendous story that reflects a city that, that has completely unraveled morally. And this kind of thing does sometimes happen. It happened in the former Yugoslavia in the 90s. It happened in Rwanda. It's, it's happened a bit in our, in our lifetime. Occasionally, civilizations just unravel to such a degree that this kind of thing can happen. The, the, the moral fabric of society completely collapses and everyone takes the law into their own hands and people just do appalling things. This kind of thing can take place. And you've got to notice as well that while the, the city is a mess, a moral me- a mess, Lot is a moral mess as well. I mean, he doesn't come off as a particularly good guy either, does he? Oh, no, 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 Don't gang rape my, vis- my, my, you know, my visitor men. Have my daughters instead. You see, the Bible's not naive about good and evil. The Bible doesn't say... There's bad people out there and good people in here. Actually, the Bible says, no, no, all people are morally compromised. Even the central characters in Scripture are very, very flawed people, with one glorious exception. They're very broken people. And Lot is in that category. And so am I. But these angels are not going quietly. So the angel visitors, they drag Lot inside. They strike the men of Sodom with blindness and close the door. Which again, there's a bit of a Passover echo here. Angels come and bring a plague, if you like, on, on all the people around this evil city. And they rescue the people by bringing them inside behind a door. Which is, very, which is, is, is a very Passover-like story. And then picking up the story, verse 12. Get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons to be jesting. Now we've probably guessed by now, but the answer to the question, did God find ten righteous people, is no, he didn't find any by the looks of things. God could not find ten righteous people, and the city is about to be destroyed. But the angels want to rescue people anyway. And, and there's a sense of urgency here. They say, have you anyone else? Bring them out. We've got to the, 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 we, go now because the city is about to be destroyed. And in this, we, 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 we find that these angels represent who God is to us. That God comes and says, evil is not okay. I'm going to wipe it out. But I want to save people as well. And so the angels are, are saying, we're coming as agents of judgment, yes, but also as angels of mercy. So, so find anyone you can, anyone else you're related to, Lot. If there's anyone that we could, we, we could somehow grab into this little scape that we're going to make and, and get them out, is there anyone else? And so Lot urges his sons-in-law to flee, but it says they thought he's jo- he was joking. They think he's joking. You know, that's sometimes what happens when you warn people about danger. You warn people about their eternal destiny. And sometimes people will think you're just kidding around. They disregard the warning, even though it, it has serious consequences. It makes me think of the story, a story like the Titanic. You know, people saying, hey, just slow down. There's there's ice, icebergs out there. Oh no. Nothing to, nothing to worry about around here. God himself couldn't sink this ship. Take her to sea, Mr. Murdoch. Let's stretch her legs. And they don't take the warning seriously. And off they go. And 1,500 people die because people didn't take seriously a warning. This is one of those moments. This is one of those moments where people hear the warning it's not that they weren't told, it's just that they thought it was a joke. And that's what's happening here. The angels are saying to Lot, get everyone out. And Lot's saying, we've got to go because judgment is coming. And they think, ah, he's just kidding around. They don't take him seriously at all. And of course, it ends up being on their heads. Verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. I mean, look how realistic that is. That is exactly what we do. Or certainly, if I speak for myself, that is what I do. Right? I'm not like the son's in-law, Necessarily saying, "Oh, he's just kidding around." What happens is, I know the judgment is coming, or that there is something uh, to be warned about. Or there's something that that might lead to my moral destruction, something that's threatening me as a person, something that will lead me astray from God, something that could lead me into trouble. And when I hear the warning, I linger. You may do that too do you do you linger do you just wait and think hmm, hang on a second let let me let me think is there is there a way of getting away but also continuing to stay here for a bit longer so so we're threatened with destruction and we're offered a free chance of rescue and we linger we wait we, we dither. We, we know the world around us is going down and we know that God wants to save us, but we linger anyway. We, we go, is it, is it worth it? What do, I, what do I have to lose? And can I take that with me? Or you know, like, like in, a, in a fire, you know, I just want to go get my teddy or my alarm clock or my iPad or something. I, can I just go back and get it? Can I? No, no, no. There's, I don't know why you'd get your alarm clock. But no, no, no. There, there, there's no time. You have to get out of here. You have, to, you, you have to care more about your survival than you do about your stuff. But what do we do? We linger. We dither. We wait. And now, there's nothing wrong with weighing up. Right? There's nothing wrong with taking seriously the cost of following Jesus. That's a good thing. But lingering and dithering is where that gets to the point where, where, where you think you're at risk of not escaping judgment because you're messing around, waiting to see if it all lines up for you. But Lot lingers. He he thinks, is there any way I can keep this maybe and and maybe not do that? I I don't want to drop everything. Listen, Lot is me. This is what we do. But this is where the hope comes from. Because the story doesn't stop with what we do. If it did, my guess is that Lot would have still been lingering and dithering when the judgment came from heaven and the city was destroyed. But the story doesn't stop with the dithering of humans. The story continues through the gracious rescue of God. God acts even when we aren't ready to. Verse 16. So the men, the angel seized him, he's he's, he's lingering, the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life, do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley, escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. God comes to us as we dither, as we're flailing around, and he is merciful to us. He takes us by the hand, and he brings us out, and he sets us outside the city. God, God does that. He, he, he says, get out, run, judgment is coming, and we go, oh, what about, can I have, you know, can I have this around? And then eventually, he just seizes us by the hand, being merciful to us, and he brings us out, and he sets us outside the city in our pajamas. I mean, that's at least how I, I imagine it, because, it, I mean, this is in the wee, wee hours of the morning. Like, Lot and his family, they've probably gone to, to bed after the whole knocking on the door, uh, you know, down, you know, incident. They they they, they go off to bed, and then. the early morning hours the angels come and go get up get up you know we we've got to go and he's like oh I'm so tired where's my alarm clock yeah no get up get out now and the events of the angels grab hold of them and physically remove them from the city in spite of themselves in their pajamas and say quite literally head for the hills and that's what God does. It is grace and mercy to people like me. He comes to us in the midst of the night, in our pajamas, if you like, and he says, run for your life, don't look back, head for the hills, lest you be swept away. You know, we tend to think of conversion is like a reasonable, leisurely debate between us and God. You know, a, light, a lunchtime chat. You know, God says, hey, what do you think about this? Oh, well, I don't... I don't quite like that, God. Maybe, you know, the way I see it, and then, you know, after a while, after a reasoned discussion, we come to a decision to follow Jesus. But theologically speaking, salvation is more like being dragged out of the city in the middle of the night. The Lord being merciful to us. Because he knows that we dither. He knows that we are compromised half-baked people, or at least I am. So he grabs us by the hand and he leads us out and he sets us outside the blast zone and he says, run and never look back. I'm not gonna allow your lingering, your dithering, your lack of decision at this point to compromise the mercy I want to show you. I'm gonna get you out anyway, even though you are still equivocating. That's what the mercy is. Of God does. Mercy doesn't wait for us to stop lingering before it rescues us from destruction. Mercy comes when we are still in our sins. Mercy comes less like a, a lunchtime chat and more like a nighttime escape in our jammies. Verse 18 And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I can't escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing uh, nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So Sodom, the city of evil and wickedness, is destroyed with fire and sulfur from heaven. Lot and his family are saved, and they flee to this nearby town. And Lot's wife, on the way from the one to the other, looks back and is turned into a pillar of salt. Now that is a very strange twist in a pretty strange story. I don't think you were expecting that unless we... You know, unless we knew that that was, that, you know, was going to happen already. That's not what you would think w- w- would happen. But I think it's very interesting to notice that that is exactly what happens to Israel a few hundred years later. Right? Israel's in, in, in the very same position. They have their little Passover moment. The, the land around them, Egypt, is judged by God. And they run away in the middle of the night, they go through the Red Sea. And then they get to the place where they could now start looking on to press on into their inheritance. And a whole bunch of them, what do they do? They look back and they say, Oh, melons. We used to have melons. And you remember, if you know the Exodus story, we used to have cucumber, we used to have garlic. Imagine they nearly gave up the purpose. Purposes of God for cucumbers. They made the compromise. They said, "We we want to go back. Yeah, yeah. We were we, yeah, we were slaves and everything. But but forget that for a moment. Cucumbers. And it's interesting that God does to them what happened to Lot's wife. They died in the wilderness, and so does she. And I find it is sobering. I mean, this is a sobering passage and in many ways a sobering message because God warns us through these stories, don't be the person who almost makes it. Don't be the person who on their way out goes, actually, I quite like the old life with all of the things that I had. Don't be the one who looks back. In fact, Jesus himself makes Reference to this story in Luke chapter 18, he says, "Remember Lot's wife." It's one of his shortest sentences he ever said. Remember Lot's wife. Don't be the person who nearly makes it and then looks back. And I don't think, by the way, that this is just a quick look—you know, a quick glance to check that she hadn't dropped anything. I think this is she looked back with longing and pining for the old. That's what Israel do. That's what she does. And that's what Jesus says we must not do. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Don't be the person who almost makes it and then looks back. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So we've almost forgotten Abraham, but Abraham's up on the hillside looking down on the valley, which is where Sodom is. And Sodom is being destroyed, and Abraham is looking down at it up on the hillside. And the Bible is very clear from beginning to end that In the end, all evil faces judgment. As much as our culture doesn't like it, wickedness will face judgment. It's just a question of when. Ultimately, everything that destroys and pollutes God's good creation will be destroyed. Pride, lust, anger, envy, greed, the whole lot. It's all going to go just like Sodom. And the smoke of her destruction will go up forever and ever. There's a starkness and a soberness to this story. This passage is the foundation for judgment passages elsewhere in the Bible. Why? Because if you want to have a world which is free of nothing but joy and uh, righteousness and free from sin and evil, then you've got to get all of the evil and wickedness out of it and destroy it permanently. And that is what God does. And so the day of judgment to come is actually a day of celebration and joy because it means the world has been cleansed from all of this stuff. And things like what happened last weekend will never happen again. But the only way that that happens is for God to bring judgment and resolve everything once and for all. And Sodom serves as a picture uh, of that for the rest of Scripture. And whenever you read in the Bible the phrase, the uh, the smoke of her destruction goes up forever, it's a reference back to this story where, where the smoke is rising like a furnace. But at the same time, it's a story not just about destruction, it's a story ultimately of mercy. You see, in the midst of this severity and this tragedy and this evil, and and then finally this judgment from heaven through fire and sulfur, this is a story of beauty because of the merciful rescue of God. Because Lot is taken from the city almost against his own wishes and put outside the blast zone. And the question that occurs to me as I read it, and probably occurs, occurs to you as you're reading about this guy who doesn't seem any better than any of the other guys uh, is, why Lot? Why did God save him and everyone else is destroyed? Now admittedly, later in the Bible, 2 Peter 2 says Lot is a righteous man, but I tell you in this story at least, he doesn't look particularly righteous, does he? I mean, he's the guy who goes, here's my daughters, you do what, whatever you want. This is not a good father. This is not a, a, a model of godliness, is it? So why Lot? Why do the angels come to him? And and some of us may think that about ourselves as well. Why me? I mean, I look at my life sometimes and think, I'm certainly no better, probably a good, good bit worse than a lot of the people who are my neighbors. And yet God still showed me mercy i I look at my own heart i think some of the things that i think some of the things that i say some of the things that i do i wouldn't want any of you to know about them i just think there there are horrors in here and nevertheless god has grabbed hold of me and taken me out why has he done that why me and why lot On what basis did God rescue someone like me and like him whose life seems no better than anyone else's? And the surprising answer comes in verse 29, which is the final verse we're going to read. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which which Lot had lived. The writer of Genesis says the reason why God saved Lot is because God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. Right Lot is not a perfect man at all. Lot can't trust in his own righteousness at all. Right the picture we get from Genesis, although there are other scriptures to bear on this as well, but the picture of Genesis is he's a f- he's foolish, he's greedy, he's cowardly, he's indecisive, he's indisciplined. But verse 29 says that Lot didn't get get saved because of Lot. Lot was rescued, not because God remembered Lot, but because God remembered Abraham. Because Lot, you see, had a faithful kinsman who who we've kind of forgot about, but who's up there on the hillside praying. And that faithful kinsman's name was Abraham. Abraham. And he was a man who believed God and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And so his, fa- his righteousness and his faith and his prayers availed before God. And, and he was calling out to God saying, the judge of all the earth, you've got to do what's right. But please, please show mercy on my kinsman who's down there in that pit of sin. And if, and if it hadn't been for Abraham, Lot would have gone up and smoked like the rest of them. But Lot had a covenant-keeping friend on the hillside watching over him and praying for him that the judge of the earth might be merciful to him. And I have one too, and so do you. I am like Lot because I also have a covenant-keeping friend who's up on the hillside and whose faithfulness has been credited to him as righteousness and who avails before the Father and stands there asking the Lord God, the, the judge of all the earth, to do what is right and to show me mercy because of his love for him. And his name is Jesus. And he's my covenant-keeping, faithful friend. And because he is there pleading before the Father for my rescue, I get shown mercy. And he prays for all of the judge of all the earth, that that he he would drag me out of the city at night in my pajamas, not because God remembers me, but because God remembers him. God remembers Abraham and rescues Lot, God remembers Jesus and rescues me, and he rescues you. It's on the basis of a friend who's praying, not on the basis of your righteousness being superior to anyone else's, that like God drags you out of the city and takes you to safety. That's the way the gospel works, friends. This is what Paul says in Romans 8 He who, who is to condemn us. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who indeed? The basis of your hope today, the basis of your hope is that your covenant-keeping friend has prayed for you and is extending mercy towards you and the Father hears him remembers him, and rescues you. Amen.